Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you. It's good to see you here this morning. Even as many of our members are traveling, uh, it is good to be together on this Lord's Day to look to Christ, who is the solid rock on which we stand. We praise the Lord that even though our lives, our feelings, our moods may vary by the moment, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise as has already been done today for the fact that you never change, that there is no shadow of turning, there is no variance, no darkness at all in you, that you have always been the same and you will always be the same. We thank you that the work of Jesus Christ in our place stands unshaken and unmoved outside of us, regardless of how we may be feeling in any given moment. We praise you that Christ and his work never alter, depending on how we're doing. We thank you that you have given us such solid rock to stand on. We thank you that you have promised to keep us until the end, that we might live with you forever, and that we might see Christ as he is. We pray that you would come and minister to us now as we consider our experience in this fallen world. Comfort us by your truth. Minister to us by your spirit. We pray that you would strengthen and confirm our faith in Christ today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this is uh, the fourth of four topical sermons. We don't do many topical sermons here at CBC. By that, I mean a sermon on a given topic. What we typically do is preach our way through books of the Bible. About one time a year, I'll do a short series like this on a a given topic. And these tend to come quickly and then leave just as quickly. So we started this four weeks ago. It kind of seems like it was yesterday to me. And now we are on the fourth of four sermons in this series entitled All Who Are Weary. This seemed good to the elders to do this time of year. We know that the holidays are hard for many. It's an emotionally difficult time for some. And let's be honest, the reality of weariness is our experience often in this fallen world. We get tired, we get beat down because we live in a Genesis 3 world. We're trusting Christ, we're looking to God, we're hoping in the Lord. We are waiting and groaning for the new heavens and the new earth. But right now, life is often hard. So it's good for us to be able to consider these things together and encourage one another in the Lord Jesus in the midst of the struggle. And so that was the hope in this sermon series, and I hope that's been the result for you, even as it has been for me. You can go ahead, if you have your Bibles with you, and turn to Psalm 88. We will look together to Psalm 88 here in just a few minutes. We will get those verses up on the screen for you again so that you can follow along with us that way in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat it at all. As you're turning, I want to begin our our time with an illustration It's not from any one particular Sunday morning in my past, just to be clear, but it's along the lines of what I've experienced a number of times in going to church, and I trust that many in the room will have experienced at points in going to church. You know, you walk into this sometimes large room, aesthetically everything's nice, the lighting is cool, there's good music playing, there's some energy, there's some emotion in the room. Maybe there's even the big screen up in the front with the countdown on it. 
You know, and it's like, man, all right, what's going to happen? Is the rapture coming? I'm not sure. You know, it's really exciting. There's a lot of momentum. And then we get down 10, you know, 9, 8. It's like, okay, I'm getting excited here. 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1. And right on cue, the band kicks it off. And the worship leader grabs the microphone in a grand gesture and says, good morning. How y'all feeling today? In all seriousness, how are you feeling today? What kind of a Bible question is that? It's not one. Many in the room, if asked that question, would probably be thinking, bro, if I told you how I'm feeling this morning, you might question whether or not I'm even a Christian. I, you wanna know how I'm doing? I spilled my coffee. And I blew a gasket internally because I did it. I was frustrated. I was angry for half an hour because I spilled my coffee. I haven't read my Bible all week. I fought with my spouse on the way to church. Ask me how I'm feeling. You want me to start there? Really? You want to know how I feel? I feel like a miserable wretch. What do you got for me? That's so often our reality when we walk in to a service even like This one, we talk a lot here about the fact that we come into this place on Sunday feeling all kind of ways, right? Not trying to be too R&B-ish there, but we do. We feel all kind of ways when we walk in here on the Lord's day. So how silly and how unhelpful would it be to begin a service with that question? How y'all feeling? We need to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. We need to be reminded of who God is, of what he has revealed in his word. We need to be told and reminded of what we know about the Lord and redemption and sin and forgiveness and gospel. We don't need to be asked how we feel. That's why we sing songs like, O fount of love divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side, where sinners trade their filthy rags for his righteousness applied. Mercy cleansing every stain now rushing o'er us like a flood. There the wretch and vilest ones stand adopted in his blood. I've been justified and cleansed, adopted, forgiven. Now, That is something. Now we've got something to sing about, right? Now I'm being pointed not into my own thoughts and feelings, not to my own emotions. I'm being pointed outside of myself to the solid rock named Jesus Christ. Now we've got something. Now we've got something that can deal with our souls. If you turn on Christian radio, or if you walk into a Christian bookstore, as long as those continue to exist. I realize a lot of the brick and mortar varieties are closing and everything's online, but you get it, right? You walk into the Christian bookstore. If you have a conversation with many people who attend churches even in our context, it becomes very clear that in the eyes of many, the Christian life has a lot to do with how we feel. So what do we make of that? A lot of times... As has been said a lot this morning, we don't feel very good. We don't feel very good about life or our circumstances. 
And sometimes, even when it comes to the things of God, we're flat. We feel unmoved at points. We don't want to feel that way, but we feel that way. Right? And even in thinking about the greatest realities in the world, sometimes we just are like, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows, as the hymn says. The title of the sermon today is Flat and Gray. The title could be any number of things. If I wanted it to be even less formal, the sermon title could just be, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. That's what we're going to think about today. Just the reality of how we experience life in a fallen world, and yet the hope in the Lord who never changes, and ultimately in Christ, whose work stands outside of us and is unshaken by our emotions. So I've got five headings, five parts for us today. And what I want to start by doing is just describing what that that flat and gray might look like. This is not comprehensive in its description, but hopefully just to give you some fodder for thought on how life often lands on you. So flat and gray could mean a number of things. It might be that you're discouraged. Maybe that's circumstantial, maybe it's not. But you just feel discouraged, downtrodden, right? Feel beat down. I'm maybe even despondent, kind of hopeless. Things just feel and seem hopeless to me. Maybe you're just weary. Like, how are you doing this morning? I feel weary. I'm just tired. Not even just physically, but like emotionally and mentally, spiritually. I just feel tired. I'm going to back this up. Can't see people bothers me. Sorry. <laughs> now back in. Here we go. Or maybe the flat and gray for you is just an absence of motivation. It's an absence of desire, an absence of ambition. You know those days where you're like, man, I just don't feel like doing anything. Like to get out of bed feels like a monumental task. To the smallest of things seem like overwhelming. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're having to really fight the desire to just check out. I just want to be left alone. I don't want anybody to need anything from me. I just want to be able to do me for like a day. Maybe you're devoid of feeling either bad or good. Right? It's not necessarily that you feel really bad. You just don't feel anything. Maybe that's what your experience is. The needle just won't move. You can't really react or respond to life as people normally would. Life maybe feels empty to you. Perhaps it's full of pain, but even the pain feels meaningless, as though it's got no purpose. The mind, your mind and your emotions just kind of feel locked, and you can't quite get the key in and figure out how to open that up. Maybe the the flat and gray, the darkness, is related to depression, whether that's an ongoing struggle for you or somewhat isolated in a season. Depression is hard. It is a deep darkness for many people. Abraham Lincoln described his melancholy, as they called it in his day. He, He wrote this about his own emotional state. Quote, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. 
I awfully forebode that I shall not. To remain as I am, though, is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. I can't keep going like this. Whatever this is, I can't sustain this. I'm either going to get better or I'm going to die, one of the two. It's Abraham Lincoln's experience. Maybe your flat and gray, dark situation is related to anxiety. You're a perfectionist. You're like fearing men. You want to be thought of really well. Maybe you're a go-getter. You're a task-driven person. And the pads are just wearing down. It's metal on metal in your life, in your mind, in your heart now. And because of that, you're done emotionally. Or maybe it's hard to say. You don't know where it's coming from. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, one beloved of many even in this room. He perhaps relatively notably struggled with melancholy, depression, the dark night of the soul. He said this. There is a kind of mental darkness in which you are disturbed, perplexed, worried, troubled, not perhaps about anything tangible. You can hardly tell why you are so despondent. If you could give a reason for your despondency, you might more easily get over it, close quote. Sometimes you just don't know. There is a specifically spiritual aspect of this for us that, as I've already described, I'm just not feeling it. I'm not even feeling the things of God. I want to, but I'm not. My love is low. My zeal is cold. My affections are flowing rather than ebbing. I'm not gripped by the things of the Lord like I want to be gripped. I'm grieved by that. All of this, brothers and sisters, that I've described, this darkness, this flatness, this grayness, is because we are children of Adam. It's because we are sinner saints, like we considered together last week, Romans 7. Our corruption in Adam runs deeper than we often think. It runs deeper than we often realize or talk about. Our corruption in Adam has affected literally every aspect of our person. So that includes our emotions, our thoughts, the heart, the mind, right, the soul. It's all been affected tragically by sin. And so that sin, that struggle, that brokenness, that fallenness produces flat, gray, darkness for many people. Second heading. So if the first heading is just a description of the the flat and the gray. The second heading, given the, the title, a biblical witness, a biblical witness. Can I get a witness? Yes, we can. Psalm 88. Right. We already read it together. I just want to read it again. This is one of those. This has already been said. This is one of those chapters in Scripture where you're like, yeah, nobody's going to put any of this on a refrigerator. But sometimes when you read it, you're almost like, there's no way this is in the Bible, right? Like, are you kidding? This is in Scripture. Yes, it is in Scripture. Inspired of God, a man named Heman, the Ezraite, inspired of the Holy Spirit, wrote these things down. And thank God that he did. Because it describes our experience so often. Psalm 88 and verse 1. We're just going to walk through this together. This psalm pointedly describes our experience of despondency, sorrow, and despair. And this psalm, unlike some other ones. So we looked at Psalm 73 a few weeks ago together. 
that psalm has a beautiful kind of hinge point in it, right? Where Asaph is basically lamenting everything. He's hating his life. He's envious of the wicked people who prosper. And he says a lot of really raw stuff. And then he talks about going into the sanctuary of God and things changed for him. Well, Psalm 88 doesn't have that hinge piece. It just kind of leaves us in the darkness. Now to the, the text, Psalm 88 and verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Like, God, please hear me. Implication, we're going to see later on, God feels far away from him. Right? God, are you, are you there? Are you hearing me? I'm crying out. Listen, please, to me. Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to shield. Like I am not doing well. I'm troubled as the day is long. Verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead. I'm like a dead man, practically. Like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Talk about despair, right? Talk about despondency. I feel like a dead person. That's what the psalmist is saying. Verse six, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Again, depths and darkness and sorrow. That's his experience. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Again, that, that image of drowning in one sense, right? Waves just keep coming. And maybe as you're struggling to try to get back to the surface, another one hits you and knocks you down, right? We've been there before in our lives. Verse eight, you have caused my companions to shun me and you have made me a heart of them. Not only that, I feel alone completely. I am alone. My friends are nowhere to be found. They've turned on me. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. I'm trapped here. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. I'm crying out, God, where are you? Do you work wonders for the dead? Like, God, are you really going to let me remain here? Do you do great things for the dead? You might want to help me while I'm still breathing. Do the departed rise up to praise you? God, dead people don't praise you. I can praise you. Please help me. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? No, but I can declare it. God, please hear me. Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Again, rhetorically, no. Right, but I will make your wonders known. But I, O Lord, verse 13, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me. And now we know, as the psalmist would rightly say, that God has gone nowhere, right? God hasn't bolted and left him, but in his experience, it feels that way. Even though I know you're there, God, but you feel so distant from me. Why have you cast my soul away? Afflicted and close to death, verse 15, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors and I am helpless. My whole life, it seems, I've fought this battle. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Again, I'm drowning. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And my com companions have become darkness. Far be it from me to even have friends. The darkness is the only companion I know. This is hard stuff to even read, right? This is real life. 
And for the psalmist, again, even though God has not gone anywhere and even all this rhetorical language about do the dead praise you and is your glory and righteousness declared, God's glory is everywhere, right? I mean, God is everywhere. But this is this man's experience of terms of how his life feels and seems to him. It's a very honest account of what it's like to live as a child of Adam in a Genesis 3 world. Imagine, kind of back to our opening illustration, right? Imagine asking Heman, if he showed up at a church service, hey man, how you feeling today? Like, well, I wrote a whole psalm on it, man. You could read it. All this to say, friends, the Bible is not silent on the hardest things in life. Thanks be to God, that's true. There is nothing that we encounter by way of suffering, depression, despondency, anxiety, despair, hopelessness. Nothing that we encounter that the Bible doesn't speak to. Heading number three. So this one, I I don't know, I gave it, this just came to me immediately in my prep. It's kind of clever. I don't know, probably not. I call it gas on the fire, colon, how we've been taught. So gas on the fire, how we've been taught. So the way that we have been taught, many of us in the church growing up, has not helped us emotionally think well about our feelings with respect to the Christian life. So many of us have been taught that the pinnacles of the Christian experience are the emotional moments, right? There's that mountaintop illustration for a reason, right? The pinnacle is the emotional moments, man, when I'm moved and I'm gripped and I'm feeling it. Those are the most meaningful times. This teaching could be explicit or it could be implicit, right? It doesn't have to be said verbatim. It can be implied in everything. That What you really need to be after are those emotional highs. Now, even if we personally, because I know everybody's background is different. Some may have not have grown up in the church. Some have, may have been in good churches their entire lives, right? So for some people, maybe it's not that you've been in a church with this kind of thinking, but you do nonetheless live in a larger Christian context where this kind of thinking is normal, right? You get it. You've experienced enough. You've heard enough. You get it. We've been taught that anything meaningful is tethered to emotion. Hence the the questions all the time, like how do you feel about this? How does that verse make you feel? Right? We talk in those terms all the time. Because the feeling piece is the most important piece. How real something is, is directly correlated to our level of feeling. How real I experience something to be is tethered to my feeling. How real I know it to be is tethered to my feeling. How ironic is that? That I am going to determine what I know to be true based on how I feel. That seems odd. That's how we talk. Some common examples of how this kind of thinking can play itself out in the church and how it can affect us. Just, again, three examples. These aren't exhaustive. I think... These will resonate with some. So think about singing in corporate worship. Think about singing in corporate worship. Now, disclaimer before I say anything. There is no prescribed biblical posture for singing corporately. Right? There is no prescription on whether your eyes should be opened or closed. Right? We can sing however we want to sing. And in this church, there are many different expressions in terms of how we sing, and that's how it should be. And nobody should feel awkward about how they express themselves in singing. Right? That's been stated. 
Some people, when singing in church, have raised hands. Some have eyes closed. Or perhaps, even better, people have eyes filled with tears. Others, though, don't. We tend to think that those with raised hands or those with closed eyes or those tears mean that something more substantial is happening with that person than with the person who is just standing and singing with no obvious expression. It's what we tend to think. So a couple of things can end up happening when that's how we assess the situation. One, those who are struggling, those who have come in and they're not feeling it today, look around and think, man, I just don't love God like those people. I just don't love God like that person, clearly. I'm not as sincere in my devotion to Jesus as all of these people who are raising hands or closing eyes or whatever it may be, and discouragement multiplies. It's not the raising of hands that's the problem. You understand this? It's not the closing of eyes that's the problem. It's how we think about all of it that's whack. Second thing that can happen is those who perceive that they're doing well look around and make assessments. There's not enough joy in the Lord over there. There's not enough joy in the Lord with that person, clearly. They're not moved enough by what they're singing. Only if they were moved like me, you know, maybe would they be godly. Now, we would never say that. But sometimes we're absurd enough in our own thinking to actually have that run through our brains. Self-righteousness in that kind of context abounds, even with respect to how we sing, you know? When we gather, so here's just a thought, right? When we gather, you never know what someone has gone through that morning. You don't. There could be any number of reasons why that person is not singing very strongly or not singing at all. Maybe it's a work of God that they are even at church or even trying to sing in the first place. Mercy and compassion make room for that, right? Second example of how this kind of bad thinking about our feelings can manifest itself and affect us in the church. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. How many in the church have grown up with an experience where the Lord's Supper has been perhaps the most anxiety-producing part of the Christian life? Because as the, the thinking goes, the only way that you're appropriately grieved enough you know, to come forward and partake of the table is if you have worked yourself up into an emotional frenzy over your sin. And if you're not properly emotional, and that doesn't just mean cry, but if you're not feeling exactly as you should about your sin, you're probably going to eat and drink judgment on yourself. That's how it can be presented. Friends, I'm not going to do an exposition right now of 1 Corinthians 11, but that is not what Paul meant by taking the supper in a worthy manner. Rather than for many people in the church, because of this whacked out thinking about emotion and feeling, rather than the table being for sinners, for the weak and the poor and the needy whose hearts are not in the right place, the table is for those who have it together spiritually, apparently. Rather than the table being about Christ's faithfulness to us and his work in our place, we become the focus because it's about us and about whether we feel as we should feel. Third example. This, this one I trust will resonate with most. Personal Bible reading. Personal Bible reading. All right now, 
We tend to think that our time in God's word is most meaningful when we feel it. We tend, I'll even go one further. I'm going to up the ante, right? We actually, I think, tend to think that our time in God's word is only meaningful when we feel it. Now, praise God for the times that we read his word and we're gripped. That's his grace and we should be thankful. And for everybody in this room, there have been many times that you pick up your Bible and you read and you're like, I swear these words are not penetrating past my eyeballs. I'm not feeling it today. So here's the thing on reading your Bible. Reading and meditating on God's word will bear more fruit in your life than you can ever realize. But that fruit has basically nothing to do with how you feel reading your Bible on any given day. Let me say that again. Reading and meditating on God's word will bear more fruit in your life than you could ever realize. But that fruit has basically nothing to do with how you feel while you're reading on any given day has everything to do with the faithfulness of God over a lifetime as you read and meditate on God's word. So all of this stuff, those are three examples of how we've grown up, many of us, or cut our teeth, many of us, in a Christian culture where feeling is paramount. What that ends up doing is it tethers our peace within and it tethers our assurance to our feelings. I can only have peace to the extent that I'm feeling appropriately. I can only be assured of how I stand with God to the extent that I'm feeling as I should. And those feelings could be feelings about Jesus, about sin, about the church, about God's word. You fill in the blank. I need to be feeling right in order to have peace or assurance. And if we do that, you don't even need me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If we do that, if we tether our peace and assurance to how we're feeling, we are building the houses of our lives on shifting sand. Because your feelings, just like mine, vacillate by the moment and usually not for the better. Heading number four. Our lack of feeling does not change the gospel. Heading number four. Our lack of feeling does not change the gospel. Amen, somebody. Serious question. Does our lack of feeling alter Jesus in any way? Does my lack of appropriate emotion change the work of Christ in any way? The answer to that is, praise be to God, no, it doesn't. Does our lack of feeling brothers and sisters, make the gospel less free? Does it make it less wonderful, less blessed, less suitable? So this is kind of a subheading. So I've got it. Here's the good news about the good news. The good news about the good news is this. The gospel of Christ is news about God's love to the unworthy, to the unlovable, and to those who do not feel as they should feel. Our feelings, or lack thereof, do not change the nature of the gospel at all. Our feelings, or lack thereof, do not change the gracious character of God from whom the gospel comes. The gospel of Christ is for us as we are. 
It fits and suits us perfectly. Why is that? Because the gospel is for wretches such as us. The gospel offers Jesus all of him and no less. And in the gospel, we are told that Jesus Christ has provided to sinners everything that we could ever need. Everything that we could ever need. So as we stand presently trusting in Christ, we have everything that we will ever need in the future in order to be with God forever. He has secured that for us. That is the good news. What has he done, brother? Well, he's provided you with righteousness that you do not have, nor do I. We confess it regularly in our church that the whole and only righteousness of the believer is the righteousness of Jesus counted to us. Now that doesn't mean that sanctification isn't real, but it means that your standing and your righteousness in the eyes of God is always found in Christ. Always. So, when the question is asked, do I have what it takes to stand before the Lord? The answer is undoubtedly yes, if you're trusting Christ, because of Him, not you. Because of His works, not yours. Because of His righteousness, not yours. Because of His obedience, not yours. His faithfulness, not yours. Right? That's how you know. What else has He done for me, brother? Well, He's provided atonement for you. All of those things that you've done that are horrible, that grieve God and violate His holiness. That cosmic treason that you commit every day, that I commit every day. Jesus Christ took those sins in his own body and he took them to the tree and was nailed to it for us. The price has been paid. Justice has been satisfied. Christ did that for his people. My name is graven. We confessed it earlier. Our names are graven on his hands. Our names are written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. He took your name to the cross. That's what he did for you. He provided propitiation for you. He satisfied the righteous wrath of God in your place. Not only is justice required in terms of the sins you've committed, God is wrathful against wickedness and against the corruption of Adam that you carry. And Christ paid that, dealt with that, took that, bore that. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And Drain the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God by faith. In Christ, what else has he done for us? In Christ, we are forgiven. I put something up on social media this week. It just struck me. I was listening to various things as I was working and it just struck me how much mercilessness is prevalent in the world. The world is merciless. I mean, just think about even our own country and some of the, the stuff that's said politically and everything. It's just so much vitriol and hatred and mercilessness towards people that disagree with you. So there's mercilessness everywhere in the world, but then there's, there's guilt and there's shame every place. Every human being is seeking in one way or another to justify himself or herself. This is why we do almost all this stuff we do. We're trying to present an image of ourselves that is justified in the eyes of other people. It's a constant project. Well, Christ 
Jesus, because of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and imminent return in his work and what he's done for us, we have forgiveness. That guilt, that shame dealt with forever. And there is mercy for us. What the world so desperately seeks can only be found in Christ. What the world so desperately seeks can only be found in the church. You want mercy? You want real grace? You want real absolution and forgiveness? It's here. It's found in Christ alone. He's done that for us. In Christ, we've also been adopted into the family of God. We are called God's children. We call him Father. And we're told that we have an inheritance with Christ and with the saints that's imperishable. It's not in jeopardy. It's secure. Christ has secured our inheritance forever. And we're told that because Jesus, on a Sunday morning, having really died in his humanity, got up from the grave, conquering death, Yes, his sacrifice was vindicated. He was raised for our justification. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that because Jesus got up from the grave, we will too one day. By faith. Every one of us in this room is going to be put into the ground that we were made to reign over. That's how bad sin is. We're put in the ground that we were made to reign over and it's only by Christ and the power of God through him that we would ever be raised to life forever. So when Christ hung on the cross and was breathing his last and he said that it's finished. He meant what he said in that your redemption, your salvation has been accomplished. It's over. It's news. It's not a list of things for you to do so that you might be saved. It's a pronouncement of what's been done that you trust and are reconciled to God. That's the gospel. The fact that Jesus is sufficient to save us even from our lack of feeling. Our appropriate feelings could never qualify us for the gospel. Our appropriate feelings could never bring Christ any nearer to us than he is. That's very Romans 10, right? You don't need to ascend into the heavens or descend into the depths. The righteousness of God is near you in Christ. Our appropriate feelings could never earn Christ's blessings. Our appropriate feelings would not and could not make us more welcomed by God than we already are. Praise be to his name. Our appropriate feelings would not and could not persuade God to do anything for us that he isn't already willing to do. And so brother or sister, if you're here this morning and you're struggling emotionally and you're you're aware of that. Because that's, that's the often difficult piece of this, is that you're aware enough and you're like, I am not feeling like I should feel. I'm not feeling about the things of God like I want to feel. And I'm grieved and burdened by that. If I could move the needle of my emotions, I would, but I don't know how. Your awareness of your lack of feeling does not make you less fit to come to Christ for mercy and grace. If anything, your awareness of your lack of feeling makes you more fit to come to him because you know how needy you are. Jesus 
will not be less compassionate or affectionate toward you because you lack proper emotion. How good a news is that? His compassion and his affection for me is constant and steady and rock solid, regardless of how I'm doing. And, praise be to Christ's name, the greater my need is, that simply allows him to more wonderfully display his grace and his strength in my weakness. So friends, it's really good when God's truth gives us goosebumps, right? It's really good. Those moments are awesome. And praise God that Christianity is about more than goosebumps. It's really great when we're struck by who Jesus is for us and tears well up in our eyes. But thank God being in Christ is about more than tearing up. We sang earlier, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. But then these words, could my zeal no respite know? Like if my zeal was just on an 11, like all the time, could my tears forever flow? Could I always be weeping over my sin and weeping over the things of God because I'm so moved? What does it say? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Heading number five. No clever words here. The fifth part of the sermon is just a few words of pastoral counsel. A few words of pastoral counsel. So I've got three sort of pieces here. First, first word of counsel is this. Be wary of trusting in your feelings about Jesus as though they will save you. And be wary also of trusting in your feelings about Jesus as though they will bring you peace. Because they won't. If you're looking to how you're feeling about Christ as the ground of anything, you're going to be blown to and fro all the time. You're going to be knocked off of your feet every single day of your life. Because there will not come a day where you are riding on cloud nine feeling great about Christ every moment. It won't happen. Now that will be our existence forever in eternity. Amen. We will not struggle with emotions that are out of step anymore. We will always feel as we should about the Lord. That's a wonderful promise and hope. But that is not our existence now. In other words, don't trust your feelings about Christ. Trust Christ alone. There's a difference there. Trust Him, not how you feel about Him. Second piece. If you're feeling flat and gray and discouraged in your life as a Christian, the best thing that you can do is to keep showing up here. If you're feeling flat and gray as a believer, the best thing that you can do in your Christian life is to keep showing up here. So what do I mean? I mean, keep coming to church when you don't feel it. Keep showing up when you don't feel it or want to come. When you wake up on those mornings, which we all have, and you're like, man, I don't know that I want to do this today. I don't know that I've got it in me today to get the kids ready or whatever it is in your world, right? To get here. It takes a lot sometimes on a Sunday to get the family here, whatever. Just keep showing up. And you're like, well, brother, I, I feel like a hypocrite when I come to church because I'm not feeling like I should and I've got this going on in my life. If you only knew what I'm struggling with, I feel like such a hypocrite. I just can't show up. Come and join the rest of the hypocrites that gather here every Sunday at 1030. Seriously. 
None of us feel like we should. Come, why? Because God in the New Testament has uniquely promised to bless us when the church gathers. There is something that happens when the church assembles that does not happen when you're by yourself. When the church gathers and the word is preached and the word is read and songs are sung and prayers are prayed and we come together to this table, the Lord shows up and ministers to his people. This through history has been known as a view of the ordinary means of grace. That God uses ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary ends by his spirit in the lives of his church. So keep coming and keep showing up regardless of how you feel. It's the best thing that you could ever do. And here's even deeper than that. This whole thing is grounded, you realize, in the faithfulness of God to you and to me. So when we come, even if you come and you're like, all right, I made it, but I'm so distracted by whatever, I don't know that I even processed anything that happened in that service today. Even if that's your experience, keep coming. Because God is faithful. God is faithful to work in us through the means that he has ordained, even when we don't feel it or even when we don't perceive that he's doing it. We will wake up and look around in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years of Christ tarries, and we will be amazed at how the Lord has ministered to us and sustained us and grown us and loved us. The good things that will happen in our lives, we often don't see them. We're not aware of them. It's just like when Jesus is talking about dividing sheep and goats at the end of history. And he pronounces judgment on the goats, but then he says to the sheep, to the one group of people, he says, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in need of clothes, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they go, when did we do that? When did we do that? That's how this goes. We're not always aware of how the Lord is growing and working and orchestrating and sanctifying. We don't always see it. We keep coming, even when we don't feel it. Third piece of counsel. Sometimes people will tell you that you lack peace in your heart because you're not sincere enough or you're not devoted enough or you don't feel appropriately and so you lack peace. As your pastor, that kind of talk is, frankly, an affront to Christ in the gospel. And it places people in a kind of bondage that is devastating. Remember what we considered last week about the internal war, Romans 7, the reality of every Christian. Remember how we thought about, you know, I'm, my reality is that I'm free, but I don't always feel free. I love God's law, but I still break God's law. I hate sin, but I still do it. Wretched man that I am, said every redeemed person from all time. Remember the words of Martin Luther on the paradox at the heart of the Christian self-perception that a godly man feels sin more than grace and wrath more than favor and judgment more than redemption. Such is our reality often. This statement that to tether somebody's peace to how they're doing. The fact that that's an affront to the gospel was not my idea. It's not unique to me. Men through history have said this. I've quoted Horatius Bonar a lot in this series just because I'm reading some stuff that he wrote that's applicable here. He said this, quote, they who would tell a sinner that the reason of his not finding peace 
is that he is not anxious enough, nor convicted enough, nor humble enough, are enemies of the cross of Christ, close quote. This is why, friends, our experience and our struggles emotionally, this is one of the reasons why the outside of us realities of the gospel are so precious. Because we're always being pointed by scripture outside of ourselves to Jesus. We're pointed away from our feelings and our emotions, vacillating all the time to the solid rock of Christ and his merit. It's wonderful and kind of God to give us the good news of Jesus Christ as balm for our souls in the midst of emotional struggle. So I leave you just as a conclusion to not only this sermon, but the series. I I leave you with the words of our Savior, with the words of Christ. He tells us that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we need not fear that if we are coming to Christ, looking to him, his merit, his work, in my place, for my standing before God forever. If I'm coming, he will never turn me away, ever. He also tells us that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He receives sinners. He's the friend of sinners. He bids us to come to him. Come to me. He says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thanks be to God for him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life, a life we could never live but need. Thank you for his death that we deserve but won't have to die. Thank you for his bearing of your wrath in our place, for his triumphant resurrection. Thank you for his interceding work even now and for his imminent return when he will come back for all of us his own. Thank you for loving us before the foundation of the world and determining to send your son to save us. We pray that you would continue to work in each of us, sustain our faith, strengthen it, confirm it in the Lord Jesus, continue to work in us by your spirit, producing the good fruit of your Holy Spirit in each of us. We pray that you would continue to knit our hearts together in love for one another as a church body. We pray that we would all know the peace and the rest that can be found in Christ alone. So we pray that you would work these things in us, and we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.